Psalm 77 is where we find ourselves tonight. Had a little break last week. What we're doing is going through the three psalms that are dedicated specifically to an individual. All three of them are written either by David or Asaph and dedicated to a fellow that they knew named Jejethin, addressed directly to him. And tonight we are in the middle of Psalm 77. And if you've been here for the other studies in Psalm 77, they haven't been particularly cheery, but we are at the turning point of Psalm 77 this evening, and I'm excited about that. Verse 10, this is the one that makes all the difference. And if you've been with us for the first two portions of the song, you know that Asaph, the writer, and he was also one of the main worship leaders in Israel, he was in some of the darkest days of his life. Uh, We've seen that he felt forsaken, he felt even tortured by God with absolutely no hope on the horizon. And his despair came to a climax there in verses 7 through 9 where he fired off six quick, despondent questions toward God, accusing God of failing and changing and being unfaithful to his promises. Well, tonight we turn a corner, and from here on out, the sorrow of verse 9 will give way to ovations of worship as Asaph sings the praises of God's mighty actions. In fact, the change in tone between the first half of the song and the second half of the song is so dramatic, it's so rapid, it sort of jolts us as we read along. If we're reading along carefully and paying attention to what he's really saying, all of a sudden, he turns on a dime and he starts saying effectively the opposite of what he spent the first half of the psalm saying. In one moment there, Asaph is as emotionally and spiritually low as a person can get. We read the first nine verses, and I'd say it's time to get this guy on suicide watch, if we're being honest. It's time to call somebody. But then suddenly he's celebrating and adoring the very God he had just accused of being his cruel enemy. So what is going on? What is the pivot point here? Is Asaph just a schizophrenic? Is he just lying to himself? Or more importantly, when I find myself in the valley of the shadow of death in life, how can I claim the kind of victory that comes over Asaph here? Some Bible commentators go to verse 11 and they say, ah, well, there it says Asaph chose to remember the works of the Lord and that is what pulled him out of his depression. Seems easy, neat and tidy, simple. And while it... It's true that Asaph does say in verse 11 in in this stanza that he remembered the Lord. That is what he did. For me, there's a problem with the explanation of, oh, all Asaph did was he finally remembered God and everything was just hunky-dory all at once. Because the problem is Asaph had been doing a lot of remembering even from the start of the psalm. You'll see there in your Bible, look on the page back in verse 3. What has Asaph said he was doing? He says, hey, I remembered God. And did it make things better? It did not make things better at all in that stanza. In fact, he was, uh, in that stanza, his thoughts did more harm than good. He was more troubled. And it led to that, you know, that terrible set of verses, verses 7, 8, and 9, where he's accusing God and just at the absolute end of his emotional rope. And so he was more troubled. It wasn't that Asaph had spiritual amnesia and he just forgot to think about God one day, which led him into discouragement. If he just would remember God, everything would be fine. Well, that's not the case. We should remind ourselves that this is a mature servant 
of God that we're talking about. Asaph is a longtime believer. He's probably an, uh, an elderly man at this point. He was deep in thought, deep in prayer during this period of his life. We're told in another portion of Scripture that he was a seer, a prophet of the Lord. Uh, he's one of Israel's greatest spiritual men of his generation, right? If you you know, you see these lists, you know, the most influential Christians or whatever. But if you had a list back then, who are the 10 most spiritual guys in the nation? Well, Asaph's most definitely on that list. At this point, he may even be the top of the list, right? And so I don't see how we can just kind of come here and say, well, in verse 11, he finally decided to be spiritual and think about God and everything felt better. He finally remembered and that was his problem. We see up in the first stanza, he was remembering. He says so specifically, I remembered God and I was troubled. Things got worse. When he remembers in this third stanza, he then suddenly evidences immediate relief and comfort and is able to once again enjoy his relationship with God. And so the turning point and why this is possible is found in verse 10. In the last set of verses, we saw that last stanza, those six angry questions toward God were given in your Bible, you see, a selah. And uh, scholars like to argue over what exactly that means, but generally it's understood that the selah in the Psalms was a musical interlude. You know, sometimes the worship team will take a break in between a verse and a chorus and they'll play, you know, a certain number of bars of music and, and it's just not nonstop chant singing, right? And so a selah was like a musical interlude and the idea was that we should pause and reflect on what has been said. And so Asaph in the last stanza Lowest of the low in as far as his, you know, discouragement goes. He fires off these questions, and we looked at those questions last time we were in this passage, right? And we answered each of those six questions. He said six questions of God. Has God been unfaithful? Will God forsake forever? And we went through and answered every one of them. And it's natural that Asaph himself would have been answering his own rhetorical questions, thinking about the answers to what he had just asked, knowing what he knew about the Lord. Uh, and in the interlude there between verse 9 and 10, apparently Asaph's heart is changed. Something is different. It's not his circumstances. They're the same. It's not his suffering. It's continuing. But certainly his understanding and his feeling towards God has been adjusted. And in the last half of the psalm, from here on out, it's like he's a new man, having come out of a dark tunnel and back into the warm light of day. It's, it's as if somebody else came in to finish the song, but it's the same guy. And so let's look at verse 10 together here and talk about this transformation. In verse 10 it says, And I said, This is my anguish, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. If you have a King James or New King James Version, you'll notice, But I will remember is in italics. And when you see that, it indicates that that phrase is not found in the Hebrew manuscripts, but is added by the translators for clarity and to help interpret the thought. Obviously, translating from one language to another, whether that's ancient Hebrew to modern English, whether that's current Spanish to current English, it's never just one for one, right? There are ideas and words that you have to kind of play with in order to convey what you're trying to say and communicate effectively. Now, if you have, happen to have a different version with you tonight, ESV, NLT, and IV, for example, verse 10 probably looks a lot different than what I just read to you and what you see up on the screen. And Bible scholars agree that this particular verse is, is pretty hard to translate. 
there are three or four different ways that it can be rendered and that it comes to us in our English Bibles. And depending on which way you get, well, the differences in the meaning and the implications of the meaning are pretty significant. Let me show you what I mean. Let me show you the three prominent ways this verse comes to us. The first is what I read there. And if we look at what he's saying, it suggests that Asaph identifies something that he calls his anguish. And then after identifying that and understanding that, he determines to then remember the right hand of God. And that's what's demonstrated for us in the King James or the New King James. Okay? The second variant or the second way this verse comes to us in the NLT or the NASB, for example, both good translations, is like this. It'll be up on the screen. And I said, this is my fate. The Most High has turned his hand against me. Okay, so we're talking about a much different story now, right? Pretty, pretty different compared to what we read a moment ago. Here the suggestion is that Asaph is still defeated and he is convinced that God is actively working against him and that it is his desti destiny for God to be against him. At least that's how he's feeling. The third way the verse comes to us in the ESV and NIV, for example, is this way. Then I thought, to this I will appeal the years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. And so in this version, the suggestion is that Asaph will make one last-ditch effort to overcome his grief and his discouragement and to convince God to do the right thing. And he will do so by reminding himself and his God about those past years when the Lord actually did things for his people. That's sort of the, the sense that we get from that variant. So three pretty different ways of taking the verse. Now, I am not a linguistic scholar, and clearly there isn't widespread specific agreement on the exact particular way of getting this set of ancient Hebrew words into modern English, and that's okay. I mean, teams of people are working on these translations, smart guys who dedicate their lives to these pursuits, right? So it's not really a criticism of any particular translation, but I think we can look at the context here and look at the flow of thought, keeping in mind what we know to be true about God and figure out what we think is being said. Because it really matters, I think. As, we, as we're moving sort of slowly through this psalm, there's a big difference between the Asaph of the first half of the song and the Asaph of the second half of the psalm. And, and this whole issue surrounds what do we do when we suffer in life, when we are, are beset by affliction or when people who were our friends become our enemies or when things are not working out the way that we thought, what are we to do? And we want very much to be like Asaph in the second half of the psalm, who's a man who is satisfied, who's confident in the Lord, who has understanding, who has wisdom, who has hope. I don't want to be like Asaph in the first half of the psalm, who you're like, oh man, what's going on? Are you okay? And we talked about that in one of the previous studies. You know, Asaph wrote out this psalm. He addressed it to Jejethin, sent it over to him. And, you know, depending on how big a lag there was between when he wrote it and when he sent it, Jejethin probably got this thing and thought, are you okay, buddy? If he had a phone, he would have picked up the phone and said, hey, do you need to talk? And so it makes a really big difference. What's the, what, is the, what is making the difference between verse 9 and verse 11? We want to find ourselves in verse 11 and beyond, not verse 9 and before. And so uh, I think we can look at the flow of thought here and look at the transformation in Asaph's heart in order to make some decisions about what he's trying to convey here. Let's think through the 
I will appeal translation, that third one, right? I will make one last-ditch effort to appeal to God and try to convince him to do the right thing, effectively, is how that kind of comes across. A problem with that is that Asaph had been appealing over and over to God in prayer, right? All of the first stanza was about how he was crying out to God over and over all night, stretching out his hand without ceasing, and that again and again, he was just imploring God and asking God and calling out to God. And so I don't follow how this would be the reason for his pivot toward joy all of a sudden in the rest of the song. I guess if that was true, it would just fall under some sort of, hey, third time's the charm, Asaph. If you, if you just ask enough times, then the, then, then the magic thing will happen and God will have to do what you want him to do. Uh, try hard enough, pray enough times, you'll finally get it. And if you don't pray enough times, well, then God's not going to do anything on your behalf is sort of the sense that, you know, the logical conclusion to me of, of that sort of understanding. And while it's true that God wants us to keep on asking and keep on seeking and keep on knocking when it comes to our spiritual lives, he wants us to keep pursuing him day in and day out. The Bible reveals the Lord to be a helper and a comforter, not some sort of withholding Scrooge who only responds when you annoy him into action, right? The Lord is, is the one who leans down from heaven in order to give us grace upon grace. It's not that he's really too busy to be bothered with our little requests and fine, if you just keep bothering me, fine, I'll throw you some you know, bones under the table. That's not who God is. That's not what the Bible says about God. And so, uh, for me, I, I have a hard time with the, well, I'll appeal one more last-ditch effort, and maybe we'll get the Lord to do something, and that's what made a difference in Asaph's life. Now, let's think for a minute about the, the version we saw, this is my fate, God is against me, that's my destiny now. Uh, a problem here is that if that's true, and if that's how he felt, if it's his fate that God is against him, well, what sense does it make that he would then start immediately talking about how great and wonderful God is to rescue his people and to help them? That's what's coming next in the psalm. It's sort of a, a cognitive dissonance there. It's something that doesn't connect. No, something in Asaph's perspective and something in his understanding must have changed. Because before the interlude in verse 9, we saw a man on the brink of total collapse, complaining and accusing God. And now after the interlude, that same man is suddenly overflowing with praise and confidence in the Lord. So what changed? Well, there's that third translation option that we see in the New King James. He says this, and I said, this is my anguish. And so first, Asaph coming out of that interlude has a realization. And Bible dictionaries will point out that this word for anguish is a word that was typically used when a person sustained a mortal wound in battle that they were pierced through. It was the, the word for it. Like if we said, what happened, you know, what, that we saw an injured person, we said, we said, well, what happened? Well, he got blown up. Most of us would think, okay, well, he must have been deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan, right? Same kind of idea. This was a term that was typically used for a person who sustained a mortal wound on the battlefield. Asaph has been so discouraged and defeated about the circumstances and the suffering of his life, and he was asking these big questions of God, right? Why are these bad things happening? Why am I and your people suffering? And then he comes to this profound conclusion there of verse 10, oh, because my life is not just a picnic at the beach, it's a battle at the front. And not only was it a hard battle, it was one where he was going to receive a mortal wound, right? Uh, I hope this isn't news to everybody, but each and every one of us are mortal, and we're going to die one day unless the Lord takes us home in the rapture. But we're mortal. 
Sin causes a mortal wound in our lives. And, and the life that we live, even as Christians, well, it's not a picnic at the beach. It's explained to us in the Old Testament, demonstrated in the Old Testament, explained in the New Testament that, that life is actually a battle. We are sent as the Lord's soldiers to go and to do his work and to rescue those who are held captive by our enemy, the devil. And we shouldn't see this as pessimistic. It's simply reality. I was watching an interview with some professor the other day, and they were asking him about life, and here was his assessment. He said, life is a fatal disease. It's a concern. (laughs) Now, he wasn't coming at it from a Christian perspective, and so he had something to worry about. But even as Bible believers, you know, we need to square up to what God's Word says about life and what we should expect in life. This life on earth is not meant to be defined by the pursuit of pleasure or by an obsession with ease. Rather, we're told that our lives are to be defined by what? The piercing of the cross. That that's to be the definition of who we are. That we have decided to follow Jesus, the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back and no turning back. That's to be the definition and the description of our lives. What does the New Testament tell us? That we are to willingly, willfully take up our own cross, to die to self, and to go through life as a living sacrifice, laying down on the Lord's altar, as it were, to be spent for the glory of God. We remember what the writer to the Hebrews said when they were wondering why they were suffering. One of those great moments in Hebrews, he says, you know, you haven't bled out yet. You're wondering why you're suffering and what to do about it, and you're real discouraged about that. I just want to point something out to you. You haven't bled out yet. And he encourages them about their position in Christ and the power of Christ, all that God has done for us. But there, when he says, you haven't bled out yet, that presupposes that they were in a situation where either literally or metaphorically, they were going to be under fire, taking hits, that, that, that the Christian life and life in this world was going to include woundings of some kind or another. You see, Asaph must have had a breakthrough moment here in this verse where he realized that even though his life circumstances weren't what he wanted or weren't what felt good at the moment or they weren't what he would have designed for himself, well, that didn't mean that God had failed or that everything had gone wrong in his fate. Rather, he was able to get his thinking out of the fog of the earthly level, which he had been in in the previous two stanzas, and he got it back on the heavenly level. And to realize that this was a suffering he'd have to endure, but a suffering that would eventually give way to splendor. And elevating his thinking and, and being able to have that heavenly perspective, realizing what he knows to be true about God really is true, and getting his mind out of sort of the fog of war, right, the fog of suffering, all of a sudden what happens? His life explodes with just the wonderful praise of who God is and how God is working and how God is faithful and how God is good and how he is powerful. All of the things that just a moment ago he was saying, is God even there? Does God exist? Has he forsaken me? Is he ever going to do anything for any of us again? And in a moment, he gains this clarity and out starts pouring the rest of the song, which is so wonderful and great, speaks so large about how great God is. As I said, scholars point out that this word anguish typically refers to specifically a fatal wound. You know, the good thing about fatal wounds are, is that once you die, they're done. You know, a fatal wound, once you're dead, it's all over, right? They can't keep hurting you. And all our suffering in this life is at best a fatal wound that is resolved once you step into eternity, right? And Paul talked about this a lot in his letters. 
says, hey, man, I got a lot going on. I have a lot of suffering. Let me tell you a little bit about the kind of suffering that I'm enduring. But you know what? It's no big deal. This present suffering, it's like a little puff of smoke. It's like a whiff of nothing, and I'm going to step into eternity, and it's all going to be resolved. It's all going to be healed. It's all going to be made right when I'm glorified in heaven. You know, once we step into eternity, no more wounds, no more tears, no more sorrows. And there we'll sing praises like this, Psalm 30, verse 11. You, God, have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. To that end, my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. That's a great descriptor of what eternity is. We exchange mortal for immortal, right? This, we must put on immortality, the Bible says. And there, no more pain, no more sorrow, just joy, fullness of joy at the right hand of God. And so my suggestion for us tonight as to how Asaph was able to come out of his intense despair, get out from under his suffering, and get back into a place of satisfaction in his relationship with God was not that he just prayed harder or that he thought better or that he went through some program. And, you know, I've said, well, if you would just read this many verses every day, everything would be fine. I mean, the Lord clearly wanted him to be saturated in the word and to spend time with prayer. That's obvious, but it's not that he just said, hey, if you would just pray all night, every night for four nights in a row, then everything will be fine. Well, that's not what's happening. It's that he came to the end of his own understanding And he was able to think using what we would call the mind of Christ. He could look at his life through the perspective of heaven rather than the perceptions of earth. And that's what made a significant difference. Immediately, his affection for the Lord was restored. You look back at the previous verses, there is no affection for the Lord. He's saying, the Lord's the one that's holding my eyelids open. He's torturing me. The Lord's the one who's not responding when I call out to him. The Lord's the one who's not helping me. The Lord's probably the one who has caused all of this pain. He's the one that's forsaken me. Is he ever going to do anything for anybody ever again? And then all of a sudden, there's this moment of clarity. And he says, and then I said, this is my anguish. This is my mortal wound. This is my battle wound here. And it's like he raises up from the fog of war and takes a look around and has understanding. In the New Testament, it gives us language for this. It's the mind of Christ where we understand, oh, God's ways are not my ways. And, and God gives us context for what's really going on in this life and what the real purposes of this life are and the life that's coming for those who believe. And so Asaph could then look at his life through the perspective of he- heaven and rather than the perceptions of earth, and that made all the difference. Immediately, appreciation for God started pouring out of him. And we'll see next time that he starts publicly testifying about God's faithful and holy greatness and how he consistently moves with power and might on behalf of his people, the exact opposite of what he had been saying before. He says in the second half of our verse tonight, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. Uh, The name he uses for God there, the Most High, evokes the idea of overwhelming majesty just the ultimate, highest, greatest, most. And he draws our attention there to the Lord's right hand. This is a great topic in the Psalms. A variety of authors talk to us about God's right hand. David, Asaph, not just here, but in Psalm 80 as well. Ethan, the Ezraite, the sons of Korah, they talk about it too. And they all tell us things about God's right hand, things like this, like how it is full of righteousness and how it is strong and high. 
and how with it God planted a vineyard and how it teaches us awesome things and how with his right hand God will save us and hold us and show us marvelous loving kindnesses. Those are all quotes from a variety of psalms talking about God's right hand. And so what a difference the heavenly perspective makes, the mind of Christ makes in practical living. Now what a transformation Asaph was able to go through right before our very eyes. The state of Asaph's circumstances hadn't changed, not, a, not even a little bit, right? Verse 10 doesn't open up and say, and then the Lord sent a miracle and everything was fine and now I'm happy again. It's not what happened at all. His circumstances were the same. His suffering was the same, but what do we see? We see that once Asaph allowed his soul to be comforted by the proper spiritual mindset, which was his problem back in the first opening verses, he was no longer stuck in this emotional tailspin. You look at Asaph at the beginning, and you're like, man, you are in a tailspin, and you are headed for, toward a big crash, right? You have Israel's worship leader saying, God has forsaken, flee for your lives. No one's ever going to help us again. There's no hope anywhere. He's in an absolute tailspin. He, he's headed for... for He's headed for a real impact, right? And then, instead there, he's able to pull up and then get properly oriented again. He's got the panorama of life and of God and of, of revelation back in view where he could see hope on the horizon. And, and this spiritual calibration allowed him to have objectivity and, and to understand the context of his suffering. And that made all the difference. And that's what we still need today because, you know, life isn't a cakewalk. It's not a long boulevard of just all green lights. The Bible's very clear. You are going to experience difficulty and suffering in this life, even if you're a faithful servant of God. Peter said this in 1 Peter 4, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. It's pretty upfront. And Jesus said, Hey, I promise you're going to have suffering in this world. But we can be of good cheer, not because everything's go always going to feel good, but because the Lord said, let me explain to you what's really going on. I've overcome the world. Let me give you a context to your suffering. Let me explain to you why this is happening. Let me explain to you how that's going to be transformed from ashes into beauty, how you're going to be rewarded, how the Lord's going to make right what has gone wrong. I mean, the Bible gives us all of this context, all of this explanation and it says, hey, let the mind of Christ be in you so that you can understand what's going on in your life and why it's happening and understand that when it seems hopeless, there's always hope in Jesus Christ because he's strong to save. His right hand has not let you go. He is never going to leave you or forsake you. And so fiery trials, sufferings, it's not a secret that we're gonna have them, so it shouldn't be a surprise when we do. We live in a fallen world. We live in dying bodies, facing enemies who are intent on breaking us down. That shouldn't discourage us because we know that God has already won. And we know the loving and tender character of God, the God that Asaph is going to go on to describe in really wonderful ways in the next set of verses. How he loves and how he works and how he rescues us, how he shepherds us. That's the kind of God he is. This life will one day give way to eternal glory, but until then we need to remember that we are deployed into a very real spiritual battle with a cross to bear and that wounds are going to come along and that God knows and that he cares and that he can make something of those woundings because as Peter also said this in verse P 
Peter 2, verse 21. God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. And so this is a message not just for Asaph, not just for Jejethin, who the psalm was dedicated to. I mean, this is our story. This is our song. How to put context to the afflictions and the sufferings of life. And this psalm has been given to us so that we can better understand what the Christian life is all about and how to identify when our mind is out of sync with the mind of Christ and when we are seeing things from heaven's perspective. And it's given to us so that we can walk in victory and satisfaction, so that we can be like Asaph in the back half of the psalm, not stuck in the front half of the psalm, no matter what terrain we find ourselves in. And so tonight, may the Lord help us to see what it means to bear the cross and how it can shine the light of truth and hope even into the darkest experiences of our lives. Amen?